Hi, and welcome to another episode of A Shot Glass of Recovery with your host, Julie, half of the dynamic duo that brings you the podcast, Two Sober Chicks. So I'm right now filming at the same time I am recording. It's a little bit like rubbing your tummy and patting your head at the same time. Um, If you can see here, you can see my voice as I'm recording. This is my studio, also known as um, my closet. So you can see, I have to make sure I keep myself close to the microphone, uh, that my desk is a file holder. I have my sparkling water right there, my big book and 12 and 12, my most recent addiction, which is Amazon purchases. Um, Pray tell what was our haul today. My cousin and my sister and I have a group chat where on Marco Polo where we uh, reveal our hauls for the day. So this haul included a glove for my dad for Father's Day that just passed. It's a middle finger sticking up on a golf club. It's called Great Shot, the birdie, which I think is when you get a two shot into the hole. Oh, I got a new cord because y'all, you are so lucky I didn't podcast yesterday and that my USB cord was broken. I got two today because I was so grumpy and irritable and restless and discontented. We're going to get a little vulnerable right now. It had in large part to do with my ex. Can I call him a boyfriend? I don't know. If you've listened to this podcast, you know that it was an interesting situation, but I really feel like God is telling me and asking me to pray for him in specific ways. And one of them is bringing us back together. And you guys, if that happens, it will be God. I'm just saying. Um, Another one is packing tape. I like to do embroidery and send them to people. And so I always need good packing tape. What else is in our hall, Julie? Oh, polysporin. (laughs) Polysporin triple action with pain relief. I wish I, I was just going to say, I wish I got sponsors and was paid for this, but I actually wish I didn't. Um, so this is a small collection of some of my heels. And this, these are my clothes and my purses. It is embarrassing to me how much I have, and I am so grateful for it. Anyways, that is not why I'm podcasting today. Let me stop recording this, and now I can get to tradition two. Okay, so that's over. Tradition two, I love you, my traditions. So in the back of the 12 and 12, we have the 12 traditions. Yes, there is another half of the book we never read in meetings. It's called the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. And the short forms we read in the meetings, but the long forms are at the back of the book. The short form and the long form of tradition two are the same. Funny enough. How long is Tradition 2? Three pages, four pages. So Tradition 2. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself and our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants they do not govern. Where does AA get its direction? Who runs it? This, too, is a puzzler for every friend and newcomer. When told that our society has no president having authority to govern it, no treasurer who can compel the payment of any dues, no board of directors who can cast an erring member into outer darkness, when indeed no AA can give another a directive 
and enforce obedience, our friends gasp and explain, this simply can't be. There must be an angle somewhere. These practical folk then read tradition too and learn that the sole authority in AA is a loving God as he may express himself in the group conscience. They dubiously ask an experienced AA member if this really works. The member, sane to all appearances, immediately answers, yes, it definitely does. The friends mutter that this looks vague, nebulous, pretty naive to them. Then they commence to watch us with speculative eyes, pick up a fragment of AA history, and soon have the solid facts. What are these facts of AA life which brought us to this apparently impractical principle? John Doe, a good AA, moves, let us say, to Middletown, USA, or Canada, or Europe, or anywhere. Alone now, he reflects that he may not be able to stay sober or even alive unless he passes on to other alcoholics what was so freely given him. He feels a spiritual and ethical compulsion because hundreds may be suffering within his reach of help. Within reach of his help. Then, too, he misses his home group. He needs other alcoholics as much as they need him. He visits preachers, doctors, editors, policemen and women, and bartenders, with the result that Middletown now has a group and he is the founder. Being the founder, he is at first the boss. Who else could it be? Very soon, though, his assumed authority to run everything begins to be shared with the first alcoholics he has helped. At this moment, the benign dictator becomes the chairman of a committee composed of his friends. These are the growing group's hierarchy of service, self-appointed, of course, because there is no other way. In a matter of months, AA booms in Middletown. The founder and his friends channel spirituality to newcomers, hire halls, make hospital arrangements, and entreat their wives to brew gallons of coffee. Oh, bless those wives. Being on the human side, the founder and his friends may bask a little in glory. They say to one another, perhaps it would be a good idea if we continue to keep a firm hand on AA in this town. After all, we are experienced. Besides, look at all the good we've done these drunks. They should be grateful. True, founders and their friends are sometimes wiser and more humble than this. But more often at this stage, they are not. Growing pains now beset the group. Panhandlers panhandle. Lonely hearts pine. Problems descend like an avalanche. Still more important, murmurs are heard in the body politic, which swell into a loud cry. Do these old-timers think they can run this group forever? Let's have an election. The founder and his friends are hurt and depressed. They rush from crisis to crisis and from member to member, pleading. But it's no use. The revolution is on. The group conscience is about to take over. Now comes the election. If the founder and his friends have served well, they may, to their surprise, be reinstated for a time. If, however, they have heavily resisted the rising ties of democracy, they may be summarily beached. In either case, the group now has a so-called rotating committee, very sharply limited in its authority. In no sense whatever can its members govern or direct the group. They are servants. 
There's this sometimes thankless privilege of doing the group's chores. Headed by the chairman, they look after public relations and arrange meetings. Their treasurer, strictly accountable, takes money from the hat that is passed, banks it, pays the rent and other bills, and makes a regular report at business meetings. The secretary sees that literature is on the table, looking after the phone answering service, answers the mail, and sends out notices of meetings. Such are the simple services that enable the group to function. The committee gives no spiritual advice, judges no one's conduct, issues no orders. Every one of them may be promptly eliminated at the next election if they try this. And so they make the belated discovery that they are really servants, not senators. These are universal experiences. Thus, throughout AA does the group conscience decree the terms upon which its leaders shall serve. Which is true, by the way. This is how groups operate, if you're not familiar with business meetings or how the groups operate. This brings us straight to the question, does AA have a real leadership? Most emphatically, the answer is yes, notwithstanding the apparent lack of it. Let's turn again to the deposed founder and his friends. What becomes of them? As their grief and anxiety wear away, a subtle change begins. Ultimately, they divide into two classes known in AA slang as elder statesmen and bleeding deacons. I've never heard of this. The elder statesman is the one who sees the wisdom of the group's decision, who holds no resentment over his reduced status, whose judgment, fortified by considerable experience, is sound, and who is willing to sit quietly on the sidelines, patiently awaiting developments. The bleeding deacon is one who is just as surely convinced that the group cannot get along without him. Ooh! Who constantly connives for re-election to office, and who continues to be consumed with self-pity. A few hemorrhage so badly that drained of all AA spirit and principle, they get drunk. At times, the AA landscape seems to be littered with bleeding forms. Nearly every old-timer in our society has gone through this process in some degree. Happily, most of them survive and live to become elder statesmen. They become the real and permanent leadership of AA. Theirs is the quiet opinion the sure knowledge and humble example that resolve a crisis. When sorely perplexed, the group inevitably turns to them for advice, when they become the voice of the group conscience. In fact, these are the true voice of Alcoholics Anonymous. They do not drive by mandate, they lead by example. This is the experience which has led us to the conclusion that our group conscience, well advised by its elders, will be in the long run wiser than any single leader. When AA was only three years old, an event occurred demonstrating this principle. One of the first members of AA, entirely contrary to his own desires, was obliged to conform to group opinion. Here is the story in his words. One day I was doing a 12-step job at a hospital in New York. The proprietor, Charlene, it says Charlie, but we're going to make it a little more inclusive, summoned me to her office. Bill, she said, I think it's a shame that you are financially so hard up. All around you, these drunks are getting well and making money, but you're giving this work full time and you're broke. It isn't fair. Charlene fished in her desk and came up with an old financial statement. Handing it to me, she continued. 
This shows the kind of money the hospital used to make back in the 1920s. Thousands of dollars a month. It should be doing just as well now, and it would, if only you'd help me. So why don't you move your work in here? I'll give you an office, a decent drawing account, and a very healthy slice of the profits. Three years ago, when my head doctor, Silkworth, oh, began to tell me, Dr. Silkworth is the doctor's opinion. Three years ago, when my head doctor, Silkworth, began to tell me of the idea of helping drunks by spirituality, I thought it was crackpot stuff, but I've changed my mind. Someday this bunch of ex-drunks of yours will fill Madison Square Garden. Ah, we do, and I don't see why you should starve meanwhile. What I propose is perfectly ethical. You can become a lay therapist and a more successful than anybody in the business. I was bowled over. There were a few twinges of conscience until I saw how really ethical Charlene's proposal was. There was nothing wrong with whatever with becoming a lay therapist. I thought of Lois coming home exhausted from the department store each day, only to cook supper for a houseful of drunks who weren't paying board. I thought of the large sum of money still owing my Wall Street creditors. I thought of a few of my alcoholic friends who are making as much money as ever. Why shouldn't I do as well as they? Although I asked Charlene for a little time to consider it, my own mind was about made up. Racing back to Brooklyn on the subway, I had a seeming flash of divine guidance. It was only a single sentence, but most convincing. In fact, it came right out of the Bible. A voice kept saying to me, the laborer is worthy of his hire. Arriving home, I found Lois cooking as usual, while three drunks looked hungrily on from the kitchen door. (sighs) Bless Bill and Lois. I drew her aside and told the glorious news. She looked interested, but not as excited as I thought she should be. It was meeting night. Although none of the alcoholics we boarded seemed to get sober, some others had. With their wives, they crowded into our downstairs parlor. At once, I burst into the story of my opportunity. Never shall I forget their impassive faces and the steady gaze they focused upon me. With waning enthusiasm, my tail trailed off to the end. There was a long silence. Almost timidly, one of my friends began to speak. We know how hard up you are, Bill. It bothers us a lot. We've often wondered what we might do about it. But I think I speak for everyone here when I say that what you now propose bothers us bothers us an awful lot more. The speaker's voice grew more confident. Don't you realize, he went on, you can never become a professional? As generous as Charlene has been to us, don't you see that we can't tie this thing up with her hospital or any other? You tell us that Charlene's proposal is ethical. Sure, it's ethical. But what we've got won't run on ethics only. It has to be better. Sure, Charlene's idea is good, but it isn't good enough. This is a matter of life and death, Bill, and nothing but the very best will do. Challengingly, my friends looked at me as their spokesman continued. Bill, haven't you often said right here in this meeting that sometimes the good is the enemy of the best? Well, this is a plain case of it. You can't do this thing to us. So spoke the group conscience. The group was right, and I was wrong. The voice on the subway was not the voice of God. Here was the true voice, welling up out of my friends. I listened, and thank God I obeyed. So that is tradition two. Let's read it one more time. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, 
a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. So this acknowledges, obviously, that God is the ultimate authority and that we are servants. So in order to serve others, we must be in relationship with God and we must practice our step two and our step 11, step, sorry, our step three, which is came made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him and then step 11 which is like also like step three it's sought through prayer and meditation to a sought through prayer and meditation I say this a million times a day a week a year and yet when I have to do on the podcast, I forget. Let's try one more time before I look at the book. Sought through prayer and meditation to maintain our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. So tradition too relies heavily on us being servants and us surrendering our will to God and having God as we understand him speak through us, which I love. I want to read that one more time. Tradition too, I love you for a group purpose. There is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Group purpose is important. This is why the 12 traditions keep us in unity. Business meetings can be a real shit show. Um, and we do see the bleeding. What did they call it? You're probably screaming it at me through the speakers right now. Bleeding deacons and elder statements, statesmen. Man, I love that. There are bleeding deacons. We had a couple in our home group where, like, I, I was surprised it didn't come to fisticuffs. Um, I like crazy, so I like to just sit back and with my mouth agape and just look at the horror unfolding before me. But I really love the elder statesmen and how you can always tell them, not only by the description in this book, but by the grace that they have and how they can be firm but loving and compassionate. So when people pose something to a group, and it could be changing the coffee, it could be changing the group time, it could be all kinds of stuff. When they say it's a group conscience issue, it means that the whole group must agree to any changes. Now, as is typical in any A, a group, I'm going to give my guesstimate, but I guesstimate... 10 to 20% of a group actually shows up for business meetings. And those 10 to 20% are usually the ones that are heavily involved in service. Look, the business meetings aren't fun, but it's a really good way to get involved in your group, to get to know the people in your group, and to be of service at the service level, at the group service level. We happen to have something like 25 positions available for service at my home group. Um, there are service positions in both closed and open meetings. There is kitchen duty, which is coffee and cookies. There is the secretary position who makes the announcement at the beginning of the meetings. There's the librarian who manages the literature. Um, there are people that have the keys to the churches. There is a group director who is the one that manages everything. And all these positions are service positions, and they range in length from one month to three years. I believe the GSR, the general service representative, um, and some groups is three years long. But if you're an AA nerd, as I am, being of service is great. And also being of service can often be the key between relapse and staying in the, in the program. So this is my plug for service at the group level. 
course you can be of service anywhere, but being of service in an AA meeting is not a lot of responsibility. You show up at your meeting, you're of service, and then you go home afterwards, after the meeting is over, depending on your service position. So it, per- it doesn't mean that you have to go out and look for where you can volunteer. My, I was voluntold very early on to be a greeter in my recovery at my first home group, and I was very resentful at the person that voluntold me to do it. But it helped me look people in the eyes, get to know their names, shake another human being's hand. And I believe it formed in me my first level of confidence in dealing with people, which has a big part of my vocation going into ministry, how comfortable I am with people now, how I can get up and speak and preach and it doesn't bother me. I get excited. Um, I would not be able to be doing any of what I'm doing right now if AA didn't teach me. From the very beginning, one of our fundamentals, one of our three legacies, recovery, service, recovery, and unity if I wasn't taught how to do service properly. I've blabbed enough. It's 21 minutes. I hope you like this podcast. I hope you're enjoying the traditions. If you're not, don't listen to them. Because guess what? There's 10 more. (laughs) I may podcast in between them, different things. We'll see how it goes. I'm surrendered to God. He runs the show anyways. I'm just the mouthpiece and the hands and the feet. If you want to reach me, or Lisa, you can email us to soberchicks at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram at two sober chicks. I hope you enjoyed our podcast from the island. I certainly did. And thank you for listening as always, and I'll talk to you soon.